I'm Brian Chung, and uh, plenty to talk about here, even though this week is a Fed blackout week. That's the terminology that they use whenever the Federal Reserve officials that are currently in their positions don't talk ahead of a policy meeting because we do get another Federal Open Market Committee meeting next week. But that doesn't stop us from having an engaging conversation, uh, conversation still on the Federal Reserve. And uh, as, you, as they just mentioned, we do have New York Fed President, former New York Fed President Bill Dudley here joining us. President Dudley, how are you? Great. Great to be here. So I want to start off things with uh, the markets right now. It does look like the Dow is sinking about 700 points right now. Uh, from your view, what's really getting markets all jittery? As we know, uh, the prospects for fiscal policy have really weighed on equities. But what are the biggest risks that you see right now facing markets? Well, there's two things going on, right? One, the pandemic's worsening, and people then worry about that having consequences for people you know, pulling back in terms of more social distancing. Uh, so that, obviously, that's a, that's a big negative. And the second big negative is obviously it doesn't look like there's going to be fiscal policy stimulus uh, before the election. And I think after the election, it's also going to be extremely difficult to bring Congress together to pass uh, legislation. So I think you have a, a potential for no fiscal stimulus until you know well into uh, next year. Well, the lack of fiscal stimulus, does that weigh on the Federal Reserve as we head into that November FOMC meeting next Thursday? Do you think that puts an onus on the Federal Reserve to do more, perhaps, uh, quantitative easing, whether that's ramping that up or having more targeted purchases on the long end? Well, they could do more, but the problem is that the uh, efficacy of monetary policy is you know, rapidly diminishing. I mean, the Fed could do more asset purchases. They could keep rates lower for longer. They could even contemplate doing things like yield curve control or moving to negative interest rates, but would it really make a difference? I think the answer is no. Uh, the Fed's done what it can do to basically make financial conditions accommodative and interest rates very low. We're already seeing the interest sensitive sectors of the economy doing fine. So if the Fed did more, uh, what would be the effect on the economic trajectory? It'd be very, very modest. That's why I think you'll continue to hear from Fed officials the need for more fiscal stimulus. Uh, we fell off the fiscal cliff in, at the end of July. It uh, hasn't had much negative consequence up to now, uh, mainly because the fiscal stimulus was so large and, and it boosted household savings, and because the reopening of the economy that we saw through the summer into the fall also helped support economic activity. But if the reopening of the economy is stalled uh, and uh, the fiscal stimulus effects from before wear off, uh, I think you definitely are going to see uh, the monthly economic statistics show a distinct weakening trend uh, in coming months. Now, you mentioned that the Federal Reserve could consider other, other tools. It's been very clear from what Chairman Powell and other Fed officials have said that they're not out of ammunition by any means. But you mentioned negative interest rates. Do you feel that that's a possibility that could be on the table for the Fed to do if conditions really deteriorate significantly worse? No, I don't think they're going to do that. Uh, there, there was a, a FOMC meeting a while ago where uh, they, they reported that all participants were, were uh, opposed to moving to negative interest rates. So nobody was even slightly interested in it. I think the assessment of the FOMC, Federal Open Market Committee, is just that the, the cost of moving to negative interest rates uh, exceeds the benefits. And I think after showing so much reluctance to, to, to even contemplate moving to, to a negative interest rate, if they were actually to do so, I don't think it'd be reassuring to people. I think people would actually take that as a sign that the outlook was even worse. You know, the, the last thing you want to do is introduce a new policy that scares people. You want people, when you introduce a new policy, you want people to be more reassured. And I don't think moving to negative interest rates at this juncture uh, would be helpful in terms of supporting economic activity. 
So I want to rewind the clock back. Uh, for those that aren't aware, uh, you managed the Fed's trading desk at the beginning of the last crisis in 2007. You were then bumped up to head the New York Fed and in 2009, really in the thick of the crisis. Um, the concern in the spring was that the health crisis was going to evolve into a financial crisis if the Fed didn't do something. I guess in your assessment, I know you weren't at the New York Fed during this particular COVID-19 event, but how close were we to going into a full-blown financial crisis? How do you think the Fed's actions played into what we ultimately had as the outcome? Well, I think that financial markets were really close to a period of you know, not working of dysfunction. Uh, you, know, you know, the Treasury market was in turmoil in March and April. People were un unwinding leverage trades, uh, long cash, short futures. Uh, and as the dealer community had uh, a lack of capacity to essentially provide balance sheet to people who needed balance sheet at that time. Also saw a lot of stress in the corporate bond market and the municipal bond market uh, as people started to contemplate a much, uh, you know, worse economic outcome. I mean, the Pandemic came on so so quickly, and we went from a fine economy to a, a horrible economy just within a few weeks, uh, and that put a tremendous amount of stress on markets. I think the Fed uh, appropriately uh, came to the rescue and said, "We're going to be the market maker of last resort. We're going to buy Treasuries. We're going to buy agency mortgage-backed securities." And then, with the CARES Act uh, and the support from the uh, U.S. Treasury, uh, introduced a whole slew of programs to backstop markets, backstop the corporate bond market, the municipal bond market, and I think with that. With the Fed there as the buyer of last resort, uh, that really reassured uh, private sector investors uh, that markets would be okay, and and the markets subsequently recovered quite quite sharply. So the Fed, I think, did a good job during that period of time, and you know they were in good position to do that in part because of what happened during the Great Financial Crisis. A lot of these tools were on the shelf; uh, they'd already been developed uh, before, and so they could be taken off the shelf quite quickly. And because they had been effective last time around, I think it also increased the expectation that they would work uh, in, in this particular crisis. So I'm wondering if we could drill down specifically on what happened in the U.S. Treasury markets. That's the most liquid, deepest market in the world, and a weird dynamic where Treasury yields were spiking up in the second week of March, despite the fact that there was a sell-off in equities, not typical risk-off behavior. Uh, what exactly happened, in your view? Um, there's been talk about maybe a, a Daryl Duffy-like way to do sort of central clearing of U.S. Treasuries. It seems like there's some acknowledgement from Randy Quarles at the Fed uh, to reform some, some, in some way the Treasury market. What do you think the remedy is? Well, people are still unpacking exactly what happened in the Treasury market in March and April. Initially, it was all about the hedge funds having these levered trades, long cash, short futures. But then as people looked into it with more, more detail, they realized uh, there was a lot more than that going on. And in fact, the lack of capacity among the dealer community to provide balance sheet, I think, was an important factor. I think what we, we what we found is that you know the Fed Federal Reserve is the only entity that actually has an elastic balance sheet that can grow to, to supply liquidity to meet the, uh, the demand, and I think what uh, the Fed's going to be looking at is can we have something in place not ex post after the fact but ex ante uh, that's available as a place to people to go if they need to uh, finance their their, their their treasuries or the agency mortgage securities. We had that in place. Uh, we do two things. One people would know that their balance sheet, you know, there was balance sheet available that they could finance these securities. So they'd be less hesitant to dump those securities. Um, and that would be very reassuring to people. So I think, you know, a standing repo facility of some sort, I think is something that the Fed's going to take a very long look at. Now doing that is not going to be something that happens very quickly because uh, the devil's in the details. Uh, you know, if you have a standing repo facility, what rate do you charge? Who's eligible? How does it work? 
uh, how does the plumbing work? In other words, how do you actually do the transactions? But I don't think that's something that's going to arrive in the next six months or a year. But I think the Fed is going to do a very deep dive into what happened in the Treasury market and ask themselves the question, what can we do to make the Treasury market uh, function even in, in, in bad times? Well, function well in bad times. Well, let's zoom out because I don't know how many viewers we may have lost talking about the standing repo facility. But uh, in regards to the Fed's overall actions, right, lowering interest rates to near zero, uh, quantitative easing, as you mentioned, with the expanding balance sheet. Um, the Federal Reserve, though, has called on fiscal policymakers to really take the leg uh, from here because they can do more targeted support. Do you feel the Fed has been aggressive enough or maybe too aggressive when it comes to calling on the White House, calling on Congress uh, to do some sort of CARES too? I think they're just saying what's obvious, uh, that monetary policy can only do so much. I mean, monetary policy can reduce the level of interest rates, and monetary policy, as we've seen, can restore market function. And the Fed has done both of those things, but that's sort of it. The Federal Reserve cannot create income, uh, and only the uh, only Congress can do that through fiscal uh, support. Uh, and the, the coronavirus is about uh, you know forces that are pushing down business activity, which has a depressant effect on, on, on income. And it's also causing a lot of business failures. It's also going to weigh on the economy going forward. And the Fed can't do much about that. So I think the Fed is, you know, properly shown, shown the spots, the flashlight on the need for fiscal policy. That monetary policy can only do too much. I think it'd be, uh, you know, you know, it'd be problematic for the Fed if they didn't say anything, because then it would be, the Fed would be somehow implying that they can take care of the entire problem when they can't. And this brings up the very interesting question about Fed independence, which brings us to uh, the op-ed that you wrote last August that suggested that the insurance cuts at that time, well before COVID, were perhaps enabling President Trump's tariff war with China. Uh, there was a lot of pushback from even within the Fed itself to that op-ed. I guess I'm wondering, you know, we're a year out from that. Do you have any regrets about, about publishing that piece in Bloomberg Opinion or any sort of, I guess, follow-up thoughts given the nature of what we're in right now? No, I mean, the, the piece was basically a, a thought experiment, basically saying that if, if, if one thought that uh, your actions were, you know, you know, going to enable or facilitate a bad policy, would you want to actually take those actions? That's what I was actually saying. Um, and it was, a it was a, thought, a, thought, a thought experiment. I wasn't saying that the Federal Reserve should behave in a way that somehow tries to affect the election outcome, that'd be totally inappropriate. The Fed needs to set monetary policy based on achieving its full mandate objectives. Uh, and I, I believe that then, and I believe that now. And I guess that brings up, though, right now, because as we kind of talked about the Fed officials kind of pressing on fiscal policymakers to do something, it's not necessarily to the exact content of what you were writing about last August, but it does bring up what is the proper interaction between monetary policy and fiscal policy during times like these? Because yes, there's supposed to be Fed independence, but right now we have Steven Mnuchin and Chairman Powell working together hand in hand to engineer this crisis. Now, obviously, these are different times. So what is the appropriate balance of the interaction between the Fed and fiscal policymakers, even outside of crisis times? We know that there's a congressional liaison office at the Fed. Uh, they had a hand in the engineering even of the minutiae in Dodd-Frank during uh, 2010. So I guess what's the proper balance between the communication and the level of coordination between fiscal and monetary policymakers? Well, I think you want to have good communication so you know what the Treasury's thinking and what the Fed's thinking. Uh, I think in the current environment, there's not a real conflict. Uh, the goals of both the fiscal authorities and the monetary authorities are to try to support the economy and generate a sustainable economic recovery. 
I think the independence of the Federal Reserve comes into question when the political timetable uh, leads to political pressure to pursue a, a, a program of interest rates that are inconsistent with the Fed's objectives in terms of employment and inflation. So if you got into a situation where inflation was rising, yet the political uh, leadership in Washington was trying to put pressure on the Fed to keep rates low, despite the fact that inflation was rising, becoming problematic, that's when the Federal Reserve independence yeah, becomes at risk. But I don't think there's a real issue right now in terms of uh, the Fed's independence. I don't see a conflict. What the Fed wants and what the administration and Congress wants are the same thing. They're not sustainable economic recovery. And at the same time, though, the Federal Reserve has gotten a number of credit, you know, a lot of money allocated to it from the original CARES Act. It only used up about 195 of the uh, up to $454 billion to backstop corporate markets, municipal debt markets, what have you. Uh, but there's been some criticism that maybe the Federal Reserve hasn't been as willing to take on more credit losses in those programs to more aggressively offer help to the states and local, local municipalities that really need it or uh, to the small and medium-sized businesses that are supposed to be targeted under the Main Street Lending Program. Uh, what say you to whether or not the Fed should be taking on more credit risk or if they have it calibrated just right right now? Well, I think for most of the programs which are backstopping markets, uh, you know, the amount of takedown of the program isn't really that important in terms of how, in terms of judging the effectiveness. I mean, I think the Fed has restored market function in the corporate bond market and the agency mortgage-backed securities market and the municipal bond market, uh, even though they haven't actually purchased that many uh, actual securities. And they, they don't have to because they're a, a credible backstop. I think the one area where people are more critical about the Fed is the lack of take-up of, of the Main Street lending facility. That was a program designed to provide loans to medium-sized businesses that were bigger uh, than what was relevant for the Paycheck Protection Program, but smaller uh, than large corporations that have access to U.S. capital markets. You know, it's possible, you know, one could make the case that the Fed could uh, make the terms of the Main Street Lending Program uh, more lenient and therefore get a greater amount of take-up. I think the fundamental problem of the Main Street Lending Program, though, is actually quite different. Uh, if, if banks have good loans to make, they're just going to make good loans. They're not going to participate out those good loans to the Fed. So uh, let's expand out to the broad topic of liquidity facilities. The Federal Reserve has 13 of them stood up. Now, what's interesting is that I was talking with a source in the beginning of March about uh, specifically a primary dealer credit facility, which the Fed had launched uh, at that time. Uh, in 2009, it was the biggest deal. It was, wow, the Fed is doing uh, this type of lending to, uh, uh, to, to, to primary dealers. Right now, it seems like it's an afterthought. People forget that the PDCF exists because of everything that the Fed's been doing with corporate debt markets, municipal lending, things like that. How has the Fed's function as a lender of last resort, we don't need to get into the budget, you know, dictum or anything like that, but how has that changed over the last 11 to 12 years? I don't think it's changed in a, in a particularly a big way. I mean, I think what's happened this time is the Fed arrived before the crisis actually got underway in terms of the financial sector. Last time the Fed arrived sort of grudgingly as the financial crisis was well underway. I mean, the primary dealer credit facility in 2008 was enacted, you know, as Bear Stearns was actually failing. The second thing I think it's an important distinction is that the financial sector itself is in much better shape. I mean, the things that were done to require big banks, which now include most of the major securities dealers, to hold more liquidity, more capital, a stress testing of capital means that, that the people have confidence that the banking system is going to make it through this uh, crisis period uh, in, in reasonably good shape. 
last time, it was the loss of trust in the banking system uh, that contributed to the uh, downturn in economic activity. So I think the financial system this time is you know, mostly working well, especially in the banking portion. Uh, the non-bank portion has shown a few signs of strain, uh, but then the Federal Reserve has come in and, and basically provided support there through these backstop uh, uh, market-making facilities. And you bring up a good point about financial stability. That's a huge uh, part of the reaction function for the Fed now under its new framework, which it released at Jackson Hole uh, virtually in August. So the idea here being that the Fed would tolerate inflation moderately overshooting its 2% target, also prioritizing maximum employment. But that, that's not unconditional, that the Fed could still raise rates early if it felt like there were financial instability uh, risks that were bubbling up in whatever market you want to look at. What do you see as that meaning? What, what could that look like if financial stability risks kind of end up coming up and then the Fed says, you know what, Rachi, we, we need to lift off a little bit early? I think the bar is pretty high to doing something like that because monetary policy just isn't a very good t tool to try to tap down financial uh, excesses in particular markets. Uh, so the Fed could, in theory, you know, decide to tighten monetary policy early because they're worried about markets becoming too exuberant. But I think the bar to doing that is actually would be quite high. I think the Fed would be looking at other actions, you know, for example, the counter capital buffer where they could raise capital requirement for banks or more just jawboning the market and saying, look, uh, this is an area where we think uh, markets are, are, are excessive valuation. The Fed, you know, unlike, uh, you know, 10 years ago, the Fed now publishes a semi-annual financial stability report. So it actually has a, a medium to communicate to people about how they see uh, financial markets. The reality of this, though, in the United States, uh, the Fed doesn't really have great tools uh, to tap down market access. So I want to ask about the ballooning balance sheet. Um, you manage the market desk at the New York Fed, which executes the U.S. Treasury mortgage-backed securities purchases when the open market committee decides it wants to change the pace or the types of purchases. Uh, John Williams, who is currently at the New York Fed, has a lot of work, I'm sure, ahead of him with the amount of purchases that they made at the beginning of this crisis. But did you ever think you'd see a day where the Fed balance sheet would be at $7 trillion. And what's the consequence of that? Well, I, I, I mean, the honest answer is, I, no, I didn't expect it to be $7 trillion. It was certainly from $4 trillion in, you know, in, in just a few uh, short months. Uh, that was a very rapid increase in the size of the balance sheet. That said, there's no maximum limit to the size of the Fed's balance sheet. And uh, given how monetary policy is executed today, in other words, by uh, setting an interest rate on reserves, the Fed can operate monetary policy totally independent of the size of its balance sheet. So if the Fed needed to go to a $10 trillion balance sheet, they could, and they would still maintain control of their ability to separately execute monetary policy. The big issue, and I think from the Fed's big balance sheet, is the Fed has interest rate risk. You know, most of their uh, liabilities are these short-term reserves, and they hold long-duration assets. So in principle, if short-term interest rates went up very, very sharply, the Fed's net interest margin could be under pressure, and the Fed that would mean that the Fed would, you know, probably uh, earnings would be less, and the amount of money that the Fed would pay back to the Treasury would be quite a bit less. And if you took this, you know, to its logical conclusion, you know, very high short-term interest rates that occur very, very rapidly could actually meet, you know, generate losses on the Fed's balance sheet. But that's not something that the Fed's very worried about today, when they don't even think that they're going to tighten monetary policy for three or four years uh, at, at a minimum. 
Well, a lot to chew on right there. Uh, we talked about everything. We even squeezed a mention of the PDCF in addition to repo markets in there. So a pretty uh, in-depth conversation. But again, former New York Fed President Bill Dudley joining us here on Yahoo Finance at the All Markets Summit. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you.